It just silenced the voices of these people who did not receive adequate care and to not bring, like, start talking about, like, the problems in the field and start to figure out ways to improve it, I think is ridiculous and misguided. You know, I think that that is not the solution to helping trans people. I mean, my career is devoted to helping this population. You know, it's like, this is my passion. This is all I do in my work. And the last thing I want to do is hurt the community, but I don't see having these conversations as hurting the community. I think that this is the only way the field is going to move forward. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. Back in July, I did an interview with two women calling themselves Jolene and Marie. The focus of that show had to do with something that is incredibly fraught, the issue of kids identifying as transgender and what parents should do if those kids or the kid's therapist advocate for a medicalized path. In other words, taking hormone blockers or cross-sex hormones to begin a physical transition. In the case of that interview, I was approached by a group of parents that knew I had covered this sort of thing before and wanted to know if I would do an episode on an aspect of the issue that had not been covered as much, and that is biological boys identifying as transgender in what appears, at least to their parents, to be a rather sudden manner. Up until that point, much of the discussion had been around biological girls. I did the interview with Jolene and Marie, and those are pseudonyms, on the condition that I would follow it up relatively quickly with interviews from people who might see things differently. Ideally, a therapist or a clinician who works in the affirmative care model. And by affirmative care, we generally mean a clinician who is inclined to affirm what young people in that situation believe about themselves, and in many cases, proceed with a transition process pretty quickly, or at least not hinder it or slow it down. I was also hoping to interview any number of people who have transitioned, including a happily transitioned adult, a detransitioner, which is someone who transitioned and then changed their mind, and we are seeing more of that, as well as a young person who is transgender or currently going through the process of transitioning. Well, here we are in October, and I'm only now doing a follow-up. I'm going to talk more about why that is, but suffice it to say that the combination of fraught emotions and limited data make this nearly impossible to talk about in a way that gets it right, at least by the standards I try to uphold around here. Every person I talked with leads to another person and then another, and I kept imagining some kind of epic six-part edition of this podcast that I would drop all at once and then ideally not talk about the subject ever again. But in the meantime, that meant that the episode I had run on this subject was the one I said I would only do if it was followed up by some counterpoints. And I didn't like it that it was just sort of sitting there as the last word. So I decided to do a three-part series in one week. It's the first time I've done this. Uh, it really still just scratches at the surface of the conversations that I've had, but at least it sets us back on the road to trying to think about this stuff with all the complexity it deserves. The first installment, the one you're about to hear, is with a psychologist named Dr. Laura Edwards-Leeper, and she has worked with gender questioning and transitioning youth for more than two decades, and she considers herself to be working in the affirmative care mode, though that term itself is subject to interpretation as we'll talk about. 
In the second installment, which I'm going to post in a few days, I'm going to bring Dr. Edwards Leeper together with Jolene and Marie, the moms from the July episode, and they have a three-way conversation where I just kind of pop in and out. And finally, in the third installment, which I'll drop at the end of the week, I talk with Lisa Sellen Davis, and she's a journalist who has written about lots of subjects, but most recently and most exhaustively about gender identity and gender stereotypes and how to think about them uh, amid the climate in which we find ourselves. Of all the people thinking and writing about this issue, I think Lisa is able to articulate the nuances pretty much better than anyone. And I think my conversation with her will help a lot of people metabolize the ones that precede it. Uh, It certainly did for me. So in the meantime, the conversation you're about to hear, and we had some technical issues and had to record in a different way than usual. So this sounds like a nice classic phone interview is with Dr. Laura Edwards Leeper. She is a clinical psychologist who works with gender diverse and transgender children, adolescents, and adults. She was a founding psychologist at Boston Children's Hospital Gender Clinic, which was the first hospital-based interdisciplinary youth clinic in the United States. She was also featured in a 60-minute segment last May that reported on health care for trans youth and suggested in that segment that the affirmative care model that puts kids on a rapid path to transition is starting to be questioned by clinicians uh, who think it's applied too often. So I started the conversation by asking her what is considered an affirmative care model and whether she believes herself to be working in it. Well, that's an interesting question um, because I think that the way that we've come to interpret in the affirmative care model varies depending on who you ask. Um, I think it sort of is interpreted differently by different people. So I do feel that my approach is affirming. So yes, I mean, I, I, I definitely feel like my approach is affirming, but it is different than other people who describe their approaches as being affirming. Okay. Is there a technical definition for affirming? Is there like a, I don't know the that there is an actual agreed, I don't know that there's an actual agreed upon definition actually, because some people feel that the affirming model or the firm, like affirming approach means to, you know, just, you know, take the word of the young person, you know, at, as truth and like believe them in what they say in terms of who they are and what they feel they need and in the way of transitioning and to not question it and to not um, explore it more deeply. Some people would describe that as affirming. Mm -hmm. um, Whereas my approach to being affirming is much different than that. You know, I, I value assessment. I think that helping a young person dig deeper into what's going on and, looking through a developmental lens is actually affirming to do it in a more comprehensive way. So I have colleagues in the field who approach it like I do, and I have colleagues, there are colleagues in the field who approach it the other way. And how long have you been in this field? I have been doing this work since 2007. And so what was it like at that time? What was, were you getting a lot of clients? Was this considered a sort of new frontier in, in treatment? Yeah, it was absolutely a new frontier in the United States anyway, and in most of the world. The Dutch had been 
working with trans youth um, for a few years prior to that. And there was a clinic in, in Canada that also was involved in, in working with trans youth, but it was very new in the United States in 2007. And it was met with a lot of skepticism and criticism early on in terms of you know, offering any kind of medical interventions in particular to adolescents who were presenting with um, gender dysphoria. Mm-hmm. So what happens when a young person comes into your clinic? I mean, obviously, everybody's different. So let's say there was a, like a 15-year-old, um, just for the sake of argument, let's say it's a, it's a biological boy, and the parents said, well, suddenly he is, he is making this announcement. Um, we had no indication that this was an issue up until now. This seems very sudden. What would be the first thing you would do? Well, the first thing that I would recommend to the parents would be to have their child get connected with a mental health provider who was trained to work with trans youth in therapy so that they could start to explore what was going on, you know, more deeply and try to understand where it was coming from and, you know, to really kind of figure out through through the course of therapy what was maybe going to be best for them. So I think that being connected with a good therapist is always a, a really good first place to start. The other piece that is very helpful and important that can happen early on, but it also can happen later and in my opinion and per the standards of care should always happen prior to any medical intervention is a more comprehensive assessment that is looks more closely um, with the young person as well as the parents at the gender identity history the mental health history you know social history you know and and also specifically you know whatever the intervention is that the person is seeking um, kind of talking about that and making sure they really understand what it is that they're moving forward with or wanting to move forward with. Okay, so do you not do actual therapy when you say you would refer them to a therapist that would be somebody other than you, potentially? No, I do therapy also. So I guess I'm just talking about, you know, I do a lot of consultations with parents around the country. And so when they're seeking, like, you know, help on, like, how to move forward, like, what's the first step? My recommendation would be, you know, yes, therapy with, you know, me or somebody else who, um, you know, could help do that engage in that process. Um, And then assessment being the other big, important piece. Okay. All right. So I think, look, it's no, it's no, um, it's no mystery that part of the reason we're having this conversation is that there's been a pretty dramatic increase in the numbers of kids and young people declaring trans identities in the last, I mean, certainly the last 10 years, I think probably even in particular, the last like three or four years, Um, And there's all kinds of theories about why this may be and discussions, and it gets incredibly fraught. It's very sensitive. Part of the reason that I am talking about this is because I've been frustrated at the way people are talking about it. I feel like there's a kind of lack of precision, not to mention a lack of sensitivity. So, I mean, can you just maybe speak kind of generally for a minute here about the kind of big picture, like what kinds of changes are you seeing and what do you make of just the sort of climate around this and and the conversation around it? Yeah, I I could say a lot about that. I think, um, you know, the field has really shifted um, from the time I started doing this work in 2007. You know, we've really gone from 
being like so like overly cautious and you know kind of fearful of assisting any young person with with gender dysphoria with medical interventions and transitioning to sort of the other extreme which is you know moving people forward pretty quickly a lot of times without proper assessment and therapy like mental health support in place a lot of times not involving the parents in the process and it's the field has become very polarized um which is you know makes it difficult for any of us who are in the field because we're not all on the same page and so and I think it makes it extremely difficult for parents to navigate because depending on who they talk to, you know, which providers they happen to talk to or what clinics they happen to go to, they may be told very different things in terms of the protocol and the process and even how people interpret the standards of care may differ from one place to another. So it's, it's confusing. I think it can be very confusing for families who are going through this these days. And what do you make of the increase in in numbers? Mm-hmm. Like just even mm-hmm. as a, even as a layperson, I mean, you're a doctor, obviously you're an you're an expert, but just as a person in the world, you've seen you're seeing this. I'm certainly mm-hmm. I, I'm not a parent or a doctor, and I see it all over the place. Right. I don't think there's a straight answer or one answer to that. I think it's very, it's complicated. I, I'm guessing um, that part of it is due to the increased visibility in the media of trans people, which I think has been tremendously helpful, actually, for, you know, for many people. It's allowed people to come out um, who maybe would not have been comfortable coming out previously. Right. Um, it's allowed people to come out younger, you know, at younger ages. It's allowed parents of young kids who are expressing gender dysphoria to get help more quickly. And it's also encouraged more providers in the field to, you know, take this on as part of their work, which is all, is all very good. So mm-hmm. I think that that explains at least part of it. But I don't think that explains all of it. I think some people think that that explains all of it, and I do not think that that is the case. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the other, another piece that's happening is that because it's becoming more of an acceptable identity for people to have and society is kind of understanding it better and, you know, people know trans people and gender diverse people now, and so it's not such a foreign idea it's become something that young people are now thinking about when they're going through adolescence and they're sorting out all the different aspects of their identity um, that happen during, you know, identity development in adolescence. So in addition to thinking about sexual orientation and, you know, religion and spirituality and, you know, ethnic and racial identity, I mean, all of these different things, now gender is on the table for people to also kind of think about. And again, I think that there's, there's a lot of positive with positives with that. I think that young people are really pushing us to to move away from the binary and to recognize, you know, a lot of the expectations around gender and the roles that we've had for so long about what's appropriate for boys and girls and men and women um, need to be questioned. And you know, we should we should be able to push back from away from that. But I think it also has created confusion for some young people who are struggling to figure out who they are and they then think the gender maybe explains why they may feel different or why they may not fit in with other people when that may be the case, but that may not also, it's also possible that that's not the case, that there may be other things that causing them to feel different. 
At this point in the interview, I played Dr. Leeper a clip from the interview I did with the moms, Jolene and Marie, and asked her to respond. So here is the clip. My son did not feel like a girl or a woman and then went to look, why do I feel like a woman? My son felt uncomfortable in his body, in his feelings, socially, and went looking for an answer to that and found the answer that he was transgender, hooked onto that and took off running with it. I think this is such an important point, right? In these, this particular cohort, is it isn't that they have ever, you know, organically potentially had this thought on their own. I mean, I can't obviously speak, speak for everyone, but I think Marie and I both feel like in our situation, what she just said was just so well put. It was an external source saying, and in my case, it was, or in our son's case, it was literally clicking on a link within a one Reddit forum that had been, you know, posted by someone else that brought him to another forum that was literally called Egg IRL, which stood for memes about trans people in denial, encouraging them to break out of their shell or their egg and basically admit to themselves and the world that they're transgender. And then I have plenty of, unfortunately, I was able to view and observe some of the conversations that were happening within these forums and the amount of encouragement and celebration. It was extremely affirming in a way where I think for the first time, my son found a group of people who he felt like he belonged. What's your response to that? Just off the top of your head. Very similar to what I hear from many parents who contact me because they're concerned you know, about this very thing that, you know, that their child's trying to figure out a, an explanation for feeling different or for experiencing mental health issues. And they go searching online and they stumble on, whether it's a Reddit post or um, YouTube videos or, you know, whatever it may be. And then they kind of go down a rabbit hole and, and start to think that this explains everything. So I'm not at all surprised. I mean, I hear about this frequently. And it's obviously very concerning. You know, I think it's, it's extremely concerning. And I think this is one thing that's so different in, in terms of what we're seeing among these youth these days compared to when I started doing this work in 2007, when the internet was not being used in the way that it is now. There wasn't really social media in the, in the way that we have it now. And young, young people, you know, really weren't on the internet all that much at that point. So there's definitely that factor that has to be incorporated into our understanding of what's going on with an individual young person um, as we try to help them make the best decision for themselves. So when I hear stories like this, often I will hear that the, the child, the young person went into a clinic Okay, this is a scenario I hear, and I never know how much of it to believe, whether to believe it, that they went into a clinic, that they saw somebody for 20 minutes for half an hour, and through informed consent, if if they were underage, uh, they were potentially prescribed puberty blockers. Um, And in some cases, uh, if they were a little older, even um, cross-sex hormones 
right away. And I've heard that this goes on potentially at Planned Parenthood, for instance. Is this apocryphal? These things do happen. <laughs> um, there are, like I said, I mean, people are interpret the standards of care in a lot of different ways. And everyone wants desperately to help these young people as quickly as possible. And so what that has resulted in is some clinics that have a more comprehensive process and, you know, require every youth coming through to have an assessment in the clinic and also have a mental health provider in the community. And, you know, it's a process. And, and so there are places like that in the United States that exist. And then there are places on the other extreme that are like what you described. And, you know, I, I hear the same thing from a lot of parents around the country who are shocked when they, when they go to a clinic expecting it to, you know, to be a visit where there is a comprehensive process and a, and a comprehensive assessment. And that's not what happens. A lot of this is unfortunately due to a lack of resources within the, within the hospitals and not allocating resources to these clinics so that they have enough mental health staff to offer these services. You know, I, that's one of the, the biggest differences between the clinics in the United States and the Netherlands, for example, where there's like 20 some mental health providers and one endocrinologist. So, you know, they've got many, many people to, to offer the mental health part of it before the young people see the endocrinologist for possible medical interventions. And that's just not the way that it's set up in the United States, unfortunately. So what's often, what often happens is, you know, as, you know, as a kind of way to get around this problem of not having the people within the clinic, clinics have to rely on mental health providers in the community to be the ones to do the assessment with the young person and then write a letter of some sort that, you know, gives their recommendation for moving forward. That can work fine, except that, you know, there's not a particular way to sort of vet the clinicians in the community, you know, to ensure that everyone's sort of doing the same kind of assessment and covering all of the, the bases that should be covered. So, you know, the, the clinics then, the gender clinics are sort of left um, to just sort of trusting you know, the providers in the community that are sending, sending, referring the patients and sending their letters. So I think that that's one of the main problems that, you know, that ha- that's happening in the field, in the United States in particular. So what is the relationship between trans activism and the clinical community? Is it like one of these things where there there's a generational cohort or two coming up through the ranks who that has a very different outlook about all of this? Is this kind of a is this sort of is there sort of like a, a culture war going on within this particular medical community? Mm. Yeah, you know, it's it's very interesting. I think that there are a number of reasons that that people have become very opposed to the approach that has been used with trans youth and are, you know, fighting it and and pushing for basically an adult model of care for young people, which I think is hugely problematic. But 
And by you that know, you mean, I think, sorry, I didn't interrupt you, but by that you mean going more quickly to medicalization. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, and in some places, you know, just they actually do approach teenagers as if they're adults, you know, where, so in other words, don't require any kind of mental health involvement or any sort of assessment. Um, you know, you mentioned Planned Parenthood. I'm not sure how low they go in terms of age, but you know, that's the kind of thing that that some places are are doing, you know, because I, they do believe that teenagers, you know, know who they are and they should be given, you know, the same approach to care that we do with adults. And there's this an idea that to not do that is, you know, being transphobic and, and is, you know, to require... Or, or harmful. Young I people mean, yeah. That, harmful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I was going to say, I mean, I've been told that the assessment process that I recommend is traumatic for people. <laughs> um, you know, providers have told me that they think that it's traumatic for people to make people go through an assessment process. So there's definitely this mindset that assessment is bad and it's preventing people from getting what they need, which I think comes from the sort of historical problems we've had in the field when working with adults where we did require them to do unnecessary things and it was very pathologizing and gatekeeping you know and and so I think that's at least where some of it's coming from that there's this like feeling that we should not you know be doing that to the young people either well I mean forgive me for putting this so bluntly but I just how is it that somebody who is a therapist or is a clinician who works in this field, who works with young people would not care to tell the difference between a young person's psychological cognitive process and an adult. It just seems like such a basic distinction to make. Well, I think there's two reasons I think that this happens. One is that some mental health providers who are trained to work with adults feel comfortable working with teenagers also because they kind of see teenagers as being similar to adults in that you don't have to sit on the floor and like play games and color with them. <laughs> like right. you can have them sit on the couch and you can have a conversation with them. And so so some people who are not actually trained to work with youth do work with youth because they think that it's pretty similar in their mind. And so that is a problem I think that, you know, it's maybe not a huge issue when someone's going in for help with depression or anxiety, but I think when it comes to something like identity development, you know, you really do need to have a background in child and adolescent development and, you know, psychopathology and understanding sort of how that looks in young people compared to how it looks like it looks in adults. And and you also need to understand the importance of involving family and parents in the process. So I think that explains part of it like so there's some providers out there who just really aren't trained to work with young people and so they're kind of overlooking some of these things we're talking about and then i think the other the other thing that's happening unfortunately is that you know any of the kind of trans 101 trainings that are offered for mental health clinicians or medical providers you know basically relay the message that the most important thing that we can do that you can do is to affirm the per- the kid's identity and help you know support them in moving forward with what they need and help get the parents on board and so there's this no one is really encouraging mental health providers 
to explore, to help the kid explore their identity or to help them really think about what they're, like where this is all coming from. And they're also hearing the message, you know, from lots of places that to do that, to do anything other than affirm is being transphobic. And so I think providers are very scared of being sort of blacklisted as, you know, somebody who isn't affirming of trans people. And, and so they, they're afraid to do that sort of deeper exploration with their clients. Wow. Like, can you put a percentage on this? Like, would you say that the, the, the latter category that you just described, is that like 25% of clinicians, half? Like, what are we talking about here? Ah, uh, well, I, I, I don't think I can really put a number on it. I, I want to be optimistic and, and think that there's a lot of really good clinicians out there. <laughs> um, but based on the number of parent consultations I do every week from you know, parents around the country that just have these horror stories of, you know, what happens when they try to find a, a therapist, that makes me feel more pessimistic because it seems like there a lot of them tell the same story that it's you know, just very hard to find someone who isn't going to just like blindly affirm, as one parent put it, their kid's identity. And like you said, with the parents, the moms that you interviewed, I mean, 99% of the parents that I have do consultations with are extremely, you know, supportive of trans people. They're, they're liberal, left-leaning. Um, they all say the same thing that, you know, if this is who my child is, we will completely support them. We will absolutely, you know, allow them to move forward with medical interventions and and all of that. But we just, you know, it, it kind of, it feels like it's come out of nowhere. And we're concerned that no one is taking the time to really explore more deeply what's going on before starting irreversible interventions. So that's really the concern I hear from parents is not that, you know, we don't want our kid to be trans, you know, but they just want there to be a process and it to be thoughtful. Right. So uh, I've noticed that one of the things that really sets people off when I try to talk about this um, sets a lot of trans people and and activists off is the if I refer to ROG date, which is this Mm -hmm. concept of rapid onset gender dysphoria. It's not a technical diagnostic term or anything, but it came out of a study done by Dr. Lisa Littman at Brown University. Mm -hmm. It was a controversial study. You know, and it, she, she's just really kind of coining a term for this phenomenon of s- clusters of young people making this identification. You're seeing it pop up in friend groups. You know, the fact that there's this one seventh grade classroom somewhere where all of a sudden four or five girls are announcing that they're transgender one semester, that is statistically improbable. Um, how do you feel about that term, um, that concept, mm-hmm. ROGD, and um, how do you feel just about the whole social contagion argument? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's as you said, very controversial. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of providers in the field who, you know, have a reaction to it, some of them, it's because they don't think that that phenomena actually exists. Others, though, are more more have have a reaction more to just the fact that it's kind of been there's been a label put on this that's not really a clinical label it's not you know we haven't researched this really in a, in a like a, a thorough way enough to be able to really call it something but um, 
and I think it's it's somewhat problematic just in that it it I think has resulted in parents sometimes learning about that and then kind of jumping quickly to the conclusion that their child fits in that category and maybe you know more quickly dismissing the idea that their child may actually be trans mm. um, before seeking professional help for it you know so kind of like almost like diagnosing the kid themselves with ROGD it's a convenient so it's think, a convenient bucket to put this all in yeah right exactly exactly so I think you know I do think that's problematic you know but I do think that the phenomena of of some young people declaring their that they're trans very suddenly you know when there's absolutely no history of it and i'm not talking about the kids who you know often the people who argue with me about this will say well oh but they you know they knew they were trans when they were younger and they were just afraid to come out about it i mean yes those kids do exist also but i'm talking about the kids who will tell you, I never experienced any kind of gender dysphoria when I was a child. I was actually very happy being a girl or very happy being a boy. And, you know, I really never even thought about being trans until a recommended YouTube video popped up, you know, (laughs) and I saw it and I thought, oh, you know, maybe that explains who I am. You know, that's the group that I I think, you know, we have to be concerned about with this phenomena. And then I, I do think that because teenagers, as teenagers, not just trans or gender diverse teenagers, but all teenagers are impressionable. I mean, it's just like a time when they're, you know, there's a lot of research on peer pressure. And um, it's something that, you know, adults are aware of when, when we work with adolescents. And so to say that, you know, this would, you know, that there's no possibility that young people could experience some of that sort of peer influence in this area, when we know that they experienced it in pretty much every other area of adolescent development is kind of crazy. <laughs> um, so I, I do get frustrated when when people dismiss the phenomena so quickly as if it's something that could never possibly happen because I think it does happen for some people. Well, I think that is what's going on it's for happening. some of these young people. Yeah, it's happening before our eyes. Yeah. I mean, are you seeing it in certain uh, kind of demographic groups, socioeconomic, um, does this, how does this play out, you know, down various, uh, various demographic lines? Yeah, I think it is more, more common in more progressive liberal places, you know, where, again, kind of going back to what I said before, you know, where kids are, you know, given the opportunity and encouraged even to really, you know, think about this aspect of their identity as they're kind of figuring themselves out. And, you know, I don't have any, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't think there's anything wrong with, you know, kids trying out different clothing and, you know, different gender expression. And, and, you know, even if they, if they feel that they need to think about, you know, different name and pronouns and want to experiment with that, you know, I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with those, with, with them doing that, you know, it's all part of like, just identity development, but it, I think where it gets more complicated and concerning is when they're wanting to move forward quickly with irreversible medical interventions because they've kind of glommed onto this idea that this is who they are and, you know, and like you said, like with the contagion, like if all of their friends are also identifying this way and they're comparing themselves to their friends who are maybe starting hormones and so they want to start hormones because the friend's starting hormones but no one's actually looked at their individual situation closely to, to help them figure out if that's actually what's best for them. 
you know, that's where I feel like we're running into some significant problems. Right. And I want to talk about the hormones and what we do and don't know about the their effects. But before we get to that, so you know, a lot of trans people will say, well, most trans people didn't, you know, their, their parents had no idea that it was, they were, the parents felt completely blindsided about it. Or they say, of course, that it, it's, it's happening in clusters because trans people will find other trans people. There's kind of a causation and correlation mm-hmm. confusion there. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, how do you respond to something like that? I guess it really just comes down to, how common we think this is. Like, I mean, I've had conversations with people who really think that um, a pretty significant portion of the human population is transgender. Do you, what's your sense of that? You know, I mean, I think we definitely don't have good prevalence rates. You know, it's very hard to to gather that kind of data, um, especially on something like this, that, you know, there it's, fairly subjective you know there's no like brain scan or blood test obviously that we can do to to know like if someone's trans or not but you know i i think that again it's it's just not straightforward and that's what i think you know people have a very hard time with anything that's more complex (laughs) and so you know of course there are circumstances where you know parents are surprised you know that that their kid is trans and but that is not the case with all of the parents that I work with, you know, they're um, one of the consultations I did recently actually with a parent was very different than a lot of the other ones, because even though the kid just recently came out at like age 15, you know, when the parent looks back at the kid's childhood, you know, the mom was, you know, was able to recognize like there were these things that did indicate that there was some gender nonconformity and, and as they got near puberty, like some dysphoria and, and body related things. And so, you know, that makes a lot more sense. And even though it was, you know, the mom was kind of, was kind of surprised, it wasn't sort of like out of left field as some mm-hmm. of the other presenting cases. And so I just don't think it's, it's so straightforward. And I think, you know, again, every, every case, every kid, you know, deserves to be thoroughly assessed on an individual level to figure out, you know, what's really going on in this particular case with this kid and with this family and, um, and you know, what's going to be the best thing, um, the best treatment plan for this individual. Yeah. So let's talk about the, the medicalization here. Um, let's start with puberty blockers. So it, it's sounding like before there was this kind of, you know, actually putting young people, adolescents on cross-sex hormones, the kind of standard of care was to say, let's buy some time, let's do puberty blockers so we can we can figure this out. Um, you know, when I f- first heard about this, my inclination was to say, okay, well, that sounds like a good a good compromise. Like, you know, that okay. if it's if it can't do any harm, uh, I guess why not? Puberty blockers have been used for a long time for precocious puberty, for instance. Um, mm-hmm. What do we know about how safe they are? Well, I, I'm not going to answer too much about that because I'm not a medical doctor or endocrinologist who can, you know, really, you know, that's kind of out of my realm of expertise. Um, you know, but I, what I will say is that as far as, you know, as far as we know from the research that does exist, um, you know, and again, as a mental health provider, not a medical provider, mm-hmm. 
the, my medical colleagues tell me and the research shows that they are relatively safe. I mean, you know, obviously the more research we have, the better. Um, one of the bigger concerns is related to bone health, but people don't start getting concerned about that unless the kid's been on blockers for a longer period of time. And the longer period of time sort of depends on who you ask. Um, two years in general seems to be considered safe by most endocrinologists, mm. um, at least that I've talked to. But, you know, beyond that, there's there really aren't significant concerns that we know of at this point with the blockers. So for a lot of kids, you know, especially if they're right at the very beginning stages of puberty, and, you know, I would say if they've had an assessment also, again, going back to that, to ensure that, yeah, this is a kid where it really does make sense to give them this medical intervention, it can be extremely helpful. And it does, you know, the idea is to buy them time to continue figuring out, you know, what direction they want to go. And if it's done correctly, it's great, but it's not always, it's not always done in the way it was intended. You know, that people, people sometimes are prescribing blockers without there being an assessment prior. Some of that, again, goes back to lack of resources. And if there's nobody available to offer an assessment in a timely manner, you know, you kind of, you have to make a decision. Okay, do we just go ahead and get started because, you know, the clock, the clock is ticking with puberty. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes, you know, that can make sense to do. But ideally, there would be an assessment to determine that, you know, this is a good good plan. And then the kid would, would be in therapy during the period of time they were on blockers. So that they were actively, you know, exploring their gender and, and actively thinking about, you know, the next steps so they could make an informed decision about whether they wanted to move on to hormones after that or if they wanted to go off the blockers and you know, go back to their original puberty. So an ideal, an ideal path would be to be on the blockers for a couple of years, have therapy, and then if the kid decides that they want to proceed say it was a natal girl, she would be put on testosterone and she would be seen regularly, I assume, by an endocrinologist. Like, ideally, there would be a team treating her. Is that, does that sound right? Right, right. So, well, it's, it's hard to give like an ideal situation because there's so many factors. I mean, depending on the kid's age and where like their stage of puberty, the blockers may or may not really make sense. So it really, the blockers make the most sense for kids who are right at the cusp of puberty because they prevent any further puberty from happening, right. which, you know, is, is the other benefit of the blockers for the young people who do then continue with the transition to a different gender from what they were assigned um, because then they don't have to kind of overcome medically, you know, the effects of their kind of like biological puberty. Right. Um, so it gives them that benefit. So, but if the kid is already well into puberty, then, you know, it's, it's not necessarily going to really provide that much help for them in that regard. And so, and so then other things may be considered if, if it's a situation where, you know, it doesn't feel like the, the young person is ready for like hormone treatment, then if it's a assigned female at birth, you know, maybe the intervention is to stop periods from happening by using like birth control or something. If they're too far beyond the start of puberty to really to start to make sense to use blockers. See, I never change. I've been the exact same angry dude since kindergarten. 
You'll never so, change. I want to change. <laughs> All right. Hi, I'm Doug Ellen. I created the show Entourage a long time ago, and now I'm bringing some cool stuff back. Hollywood Ways podcast starting soon. I'm going to tell you where to eat, where to meet, how to inspire and motivate yourself, bringing someone cooler and younger and hipper with me. I'm lucky to have her. Breezy, what's happening? What's up? And we're going to bring in some cool guests, movies that have inspired me, TV shows. I want to watch them, talk about them, stuff that inspired you, you know? This is definitely a conversation everybody wants to have. You got to watch Entourage, by the way, what you haven't. Dude, you got like 40 seasons of that, right? No, eight seasons and 40. Charlie Sheen watched them in three days. How many episodes per season? Average of 10. 30 minutes or an hour? The 30 minutes. Do you hear this? Don't Do put me on blast. <laughs> I'm excited. We're going to give you every ounce of what Hollywood has to offer. Available on all podcast platforms. Doug Allen, Breezy, follow us at Hollywood Ways. Let's go. Now available on all podcast platforms. What do you know about kids getting um, getting hormones or blockers online? So there are websites you can go to and sign up for, you know, to pay a certain amount of money and you can be on some kind of plan to, you know, have received through the mail your medication. Mm-hmm. They offer kind of, you know, video conference therapy uh, and, you know, even letters of support for surgery. Um, just poking around in, in that stuff to me, I was really surprised that this was available. Mm-hmm. What do you know about that kind of stuff? I don't know much about that. I mean, I've heard about it and that's terrifying to me. I think that sounds like a horrible, horrible idea, <laughs> um, for so many reasons. Yeah. But I mean, you know, for one thing, you know, anybody on hormones needs to get blood work done so that they, you know, their levels can be monitored and all of that. And, you know, to do all of this without any sort of like direct contact with a doctor seems, you know, really, really risky. So I, you know, I have, you know, I haven't had any teenagers who did that, you know, or, you know, I guess I've had occasionally somebody who will like threaten that they're going to do that, you know, or they're going to just go to Planned Parenthood if, if we don't move more quickly with the process, you know, or if their parents don't get on board more quickly, they never have actually, I've never had anybody who actually did that. But, you know, I think that, you know, for some teenagers, you know, they get very frustrated with having to wait and, and they get frustrated that, with the fact that there's a process. And so that it can be challenging, obviously can cause a lot of conflict in the family. Um, but then there are other teenagers who totally understand the reason for the process and they're grateful for it. And they, you know, they feel like it's important because they they talk about the, the peers at their school who, you know, are identifying as trans who they don't think are actually trans. And, and they recognize there has to be some way to, to make sure that medical interventions are only used with people who, you know, really are going to benefit with, from them. Because what will happen if we don't have a process like that is exactly what we're seeing, which is more and more people detransitioning which is then going to call into question the whole field and the whole like idea of even offering medical interventions for trans youth. Right. Um, <laughs> that's been my biggest fear for the last five to 10 years is that as the pendulum has been shifting to this like less rigorous sort of process that, you know, there's just going to be more people regretting it. And then that's just going to really make it extremely difficult for all the people who are trans who and trans youth, you know, who really need these interventions. Exactly. Well, it's almost like this logical fallacy here. This is what I what I find myself, you know, trying to say to people, some, you know, some people who are trans, like, 
if you are trans, wouldn't you want the people who are experiencing various, you know, identity issues and dysphoria issues to be properly assessed mm-hmm. so that that if they're not trans, they can get the help they need? Like, does that not yeah. validate trans existence yeah. more than erase it. Yeah. And yet the argument from activists is always like, well, if you, if you don't, um, if you question what a young person uh, thinks of themselves on any level, you are harming trans people. You're erasing their existence. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you have a conversation with people who are just falling back on those sorts of arguments all the time? Yeah. It's very frustrating. And I just want to point out that, Fortunately, you know, there are also trans people and even trans teenagers who do not agree with that approach, you know, do not agree with the activists who are saying that and who feel very strongly that there needs to be a process. And, you know, and and so I, obviously, you know, there are some there can be you know small numbers of people who have very loud voices and you know, are, you know, saying these things, but I think it's really important to recognize that, um, you know, that does not speak for the whole trans community. I mean, I, you know, I've got colleagues who are trans who, you know, feel, uh, you know, we align almost entirely on this approach and, you know, they feel very strongly that there needs to be a process and that youth need to be assessed and they have the same concerns about people moving forward too quickly. So, I think it's 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 nearly impossible sometimes to have to have like a logical conversation with people who you know see it in such a sort of kind of like narrow way, and I don't know if it's coming from like a strong emotion a strong emotional place, and it's just hard to really like recognize that you know that that this doesn't have to be you know a negative thing. Again, I think I, I feel like it kind of goes back to you know, maybe fear by people who, who maybe have had that experience themselves, yeah. like with the medical and mental health community. And so, you know, it's coming from their own like traumatic path, perhaps. And, and then it makes it very difficult for them to recognize that not all providers in the field are approaching it in this, you know, sort of negative gatekeeping kind of way that it maybe it was damaging for them. You appeared on, on a, the 60 minutes segment that they did about, about trans youth, um, you were making some pretty nuanced points. Did you have pushback from anyone in your field um, as a result of that? Mm. You know, I was prepared for a lot of pushback. um, And I did get a little pushback before it happened about like whether I, you know, if I should even agree to do it. But interestingly, I mean, the responses that I received were overwhelmingly positive. I, I think I had one email from someone who thought that I had done damage to the, to the trans community by participating. Um, and a couple of, of email responses from people sort of on the, the extreme right thinking that, you know, I was horrible for helping trans youth and, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) I don't think that they really recognize what I was saying (laughs) in the piece, but, um, but like, I would say hundreds of emails, you know, from people who like parents, trans people, like LGBT activists even, Mm. um, and, and, and providers, lots of providers who, you know, were thanking me for speaking up because they're afraid to, (laughs) um, 
but yeah, so I was pleasantly surprised that it, it was more positive than the negative, at least that I received directly. You know, I was not digging around online on right. Twitter and whatnot. To, like, Don't go borrowing trouble. Me, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So why is it that you think there's so much fear of speaking up? I mean, if, if most people see it this way, ultimately, if, if it really is truly a sort of small but vocal minority who are, who are pushing this other narrative, why is there so much fear? You know, I think that the fear and like with the 60 minutes episode, the, the fear around even like that, that being aired was that by, by talking about the complexities, by talking about the reality that people do detransition, that some people do um, detransition, that that would just give like fuel to the conservative side right. on like, you know, with, with, with all of the horrible things that are happening in states where trans youth are being denied access to care. And, you know, it's a valid concern. You know, I think that, you know, it, it is an important thing and, and something that I know the 60 Minutes producers thought long and hard about. You know, I know myself and others that were interviewed, like really grappled with um, because we, we knew that that could, you know, that that was a reality um, that could happen. But but the other reality is that, I mean, that's already happening. Like, <laughs> there's already, you know, pushback. And so to just silence the voices of these people who did not receive adequate care and, and to not bring, like, start talking about, like, the problems in the field and start to figure out ways to improve it, I think is ridiculous and misguided. You know, I think that that is not the solution to helping trans people. I mean, my career is devoted to helping this population. You know, it's like, this is my passion. This is all I do in my work. And, you know, so the last thing I want to do is hurt the community, but I don't see having these conversations as hurting the community. I think that this is the only way the field is going to move forward. What do we know about detransitioners? Obviously numbers are hard to come by, but we're seeing them pop up. You know, there are now detransitioner YouTube influencers, but also detransitioner is a word that if you say, you know, to a certain kind of activist, that's tantamount to hate speech. Uh-huh. <laughs> the fact that anybody would detransition or that you would talk about it again is is erasing the existence of trans people. I mean, how what do we know about about people who uh, who change their minds? How common is it? Well, we don't know a whole lot. Um and unfortunately, I think part of that is due to, again, um, I mean, it sounds ridiculous and it, it's crazy, but I think there is fear in the field by researchers, you know, to really look at this because of what you just said. I mean, it's going to be met with criticism and, uh, you know, people may not like what they learn <laughs> um, or, or what, you know, what's found. And so I think it's made it, that's made it really difficult to even start doing the research. But, wow. you know, it is clear. I mean, even just based on the you know, 60 Minutes episode and like the research that, that the journalists did, I mean, there's a growing number of people who are detransitioning and there are your support groups and, you know, there are groups popping up for people who have detransitioned and they are starting to like be more vocal. Um, and so... My hope is that, you know, things will start to shift and, you know, everyone will start paying more attention to that, you know, namely, you know, 
clinics, you know, any like providers out out there, you know, it's not just activists. I mean, there are providers who really don't believe that detransitioning happens. Like, you know, and I don't really under, know how. So what are they think they're that. seeing? So when when they see somebody who is saying I detransitioned, yeah, what do they think they're looking at? They think they're looking at someone who was pressured, like by their family or something to go back to their original. Gender. Okay. So like an, if like an ex gay. So the thing is what, how do you square this? Like if people compare detransitioning to somebody who who is gay, deciding that they're not gay anymore and that we have established that that doesn't really happen. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like, how do we kind of work through the logic there? Well, I mean, I, again, I think it's, I guess it's they weren't trans to yeah. begin with, right? So I guess they weren't, they were not yeah. really trans. So you're not, you're a detransitioner. You're really a D, you're somebody who decided that you weren't trans. Maybe this is kind of a, a semantic discrepancy. Yeah, well, and, you know, I think, you know, I think obviously there are cases where, you know, the person probably was, you know, kind of pressured by their family to, you know, and they really are trans and, you know, but you know, their church or their family or, you know, they decide to go into the military or whatever, you know, they, they feel like it's just too difficult and I'm getting all the pressure. I'm just going to go back, you know, but in fact, they actually are trans and they're just having to repress it again or something like, of course, I'm sure yes. that those cases exist. I have absolutely no doubt about that. But to say that there aren't also people who did like went through a transition process and then later realized that it was not the right thing for them and that they actually aren't trans and were never, they never were trans. Maybe they experienced dysphoria, but the solution for addressing their dysphoria or the treatment should not have been medical intervention to say that those people don't exist and that that doesn't actually happen um, is absolutely crazy. I mean, that's, and, and so I don't know how to even like address that with someone who would say that. Well, I really can't thank you enough for for speaking with me. I I have to say so. This is a great conversation and I'm like incredibly illuminating and and useful, but on some level it's not it's not going to um appease my critics because, you know, people always say you you know, you keep you keep talking about this issue but you never have on um a a trans person who is more representative of of the activist side or the, the traditional activists that we see, or you're not having on a, mm. a gender affirming therapist. So like, as you know, <laughs> you, you're not, people are not going to be satisfied with the fact that I brought you on. And so my question, I guess, is like, what would it take for somebody who was a, an affirming therapist in the way that, that, you know, that you are not quite all the way, um, mm-hmm. to, to come talk to me. I mean, frankly, the person, one of the people who I reached out to, um, and was just absolutely, um, accusing me of, of like peddling junk science and, and having really irresponsible conversations and, you know, was really hostile. This was a medical mm-hmm. doctor who was the director mm-hmm. of a, of a clinic at a, a gender clinic at a major research institution. I mean, a major mm-hmm. public university medical institution and I, I found it astonishing that a that somebody in that position would would respond that way like is uh. there is there and I wonder too and I think part of honestly I think part of 
the reason this person responded that way is that I did refer to ROGD in my email. I didn't say it was that I was for it or against it, or I just, I just said, you know, conversations that invoke this concept. And I think that set them off. Mm. Like, mm-hmm. what would be your advice for people like me or even parents, you know, to, to sort of build bridges between the way we see these things and the way um, some of these, these more, you know, these other people see things. Mm. Oh gosh. Um, I am a psychologist, but I don't know. If that's yeah, that might be a tall order. The answer to that. I mean, I think it's really difficult because people, you know, for, for whatever reason, get so emotional about this and don't want to just have a conversation. And I don't really understand why people wouldn't want to share their perspective on why they practice the way they do, you know, and if they believe so strongly that it's the right way, it would be very helpful for people, for others to kind of hear, you know, like the logic behind it and like why they they feel that way. So I I think you're probably right, you know, that maybe, you know, I think the ROGD thing does just kind of set people off. Um, There are certain certain things like that that... um, people quickly jump to the conclusion that, you know, you must be transphobic or you must have an agenda or whatever, you know, if you are wanting to talk about certain things, which again, that's just kind of in and of itself is, is kind of fascinating, but yeah, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how to, to help with that. I think it's very challenging to sometimes to get people to engage in a conversation. I've had people who have tried to have, trainings that I've offered or that I was asked to do canceled. They've, and in some cases, they actually have succeeded in having things canceled because they knew I was going to be the one doing it. And oh, in other cases, you know, people raise concerns about me being involved in it or whatever. But when the organizers of the conference tried to have, like, set a meeting for us to all talk about the concerns, they refused to participate in the meeting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I don't know. There just seems to be, a res- like, resistance to to actually having conversations about some of these things for some reason. Well, Laura, thank you so much for, for speaking with me. Um, I know your, you've, your schedule is jam-packed, so I'm really grateful for you taking the time here. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. This was a great conversation. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast. You can learn more about the show by visiting theunspeakablepodcast.com. You can get ad-free versions of the show and join the community of listeners by going to patreon.com slash the unspeakable and subscribing at any level. We've been having listener hangouts on Zoom to talk about the show and a very cool thing has emerged wherein we are now having episode specific hangouts. We're going to choose a particular episode to discuss and meet every other Sunday from 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern to talk about it. I'll choose the episodes based on feedback from listeners. Something tells me this week's series will be one of them. And you can join us by subscribing at the $10 a month level or higher on patreon.com slash the unspeakable. It also just helps to support the show by leaving a rating or a review, a positive review, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next time with another super nuanced guest. See you next time. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about up to 25% off grocery store prices. 
Oh, really? What's wrong with paying full price, huh? No, sir. I would not join BJ's Wholesale Club. Let's agree to disagree, Frank. Say you do want to sign up now for amazing savings. Join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in South Fayette. Visit BJ's.com slash South Fayette or the BJ's Membership Center at Newbury Market. Addiction is a disease that impacts all of us. Whether you, your neighbor, friend, or family member is struggling, everyone feels the pain of addiction. Recovery Centers of America, Monroeville, wants you to know that addiction treatment works and recovery is possible. Call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW for help for yourself or a loved one. Recovery Centers of America have helped thousands of patients across the United States and here in Western Pennsylvania start a better, healthier way of life through their evidence-based inpatient and outpatient treatment programs. The caring team of physicians and clinicians at Recovery Centers of America see their patients as so much more than their addiction and are deeply committed to providing expert care care with heart. Recovery Centers of America knows that every day in active addiction is a day in isolation, which is why they admit new patients 24-7 year-round. Don't wait. Make the call that can change everything. Call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW.